0: Hello, I'm Julia Ringo, Associate Editor at FSG.
1: I'm Megan Rosenblum, author of Dark Archives, a Librarian's Investigation into the Science and History of Books Bound in Human Skin.
0: In this episode of Well-Versed, we'll be talking about Megan's background as a medical librarian, a journalist, and a member of the death-positive community, and how these experiences came together to inspire her to write a book about anthropodermic bibliopegy. The practice of binding books in human skin. Megan, um, could you tell us a little about your background? What was your first job, and how did you get to where you are now, which is collections strategies librarian at UCLA?
1: Well, my first ever job uh, was when I was fourteen, and I worked in a basically a sweatshop. Actually, it was <laughs> I I was working for a I was 14 years old and getting paid by the piece to put together Allen wrench sets in a factory.
0: So how did we get that gig?
1: <laughs> it was, um, you know, a friend's parent's company and, you know, not many people are hiring 14 year olds or anything. So, all you know, my friends and I all work together at this place and I would come home smelling like motor oil and <laughs> and everything. It was, so I've had pretty much, you know, a, up working class kid outside of Philadelphia. So I've had pretty much every kind of job you can imagine and usually multiple (laughs) jobs at once. But when um, I uh, early on you know even even before my you know sweatshop days I always wanted to be a writer and when I was a little kid I would you know write short stories and stuff and they would get get into the little young authors contests and things as a kid. And, um, you know, I remember writing in a spiral bound notebook when I was probably in third grade and I got maybe 16 handwritten pages of a book that I was writing. And I thought I'm almost done. You know, I was (laughs) like, this is almost done. This whole writing a book thing is, is, is total piece of cake. Um, but I think at some point I decided that I was more interested in nonfiction and writing nonfiction than fiction, partially because I love fiction so much and got such a huge, um, I was such a big reader that I kind of realized early on that, that was a special kind to be original in that space was something I didn't really feel like I could do. Um, mm. but I really loved to write. And, and also every time I read anything, I would just be infused by the tone or whatever, some writer. So anytime I tried to write something as a kid, it would just come out like, Oh, I just read Irvin Welsh. And now it sounds like that, or I just read, you know, Kerouac and it sounds like that. And that's not really, um, That's not really great. It's more of a sponge, I guess. And so I, I got really interested in journalism and was, you know, editor of my high school paper and all that stuff and went to college for journalism. And I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia, which is one of those, uh, one of those co-op program schools where it's actually five years and you do and it's a quarter system. And then half Mm -hmm. the time you're in school, you're actually just working. And Mm. that works out, you know, now luckily journalism, there's way more of a focus on paid internships, but back then there wasn't at all. So I would just be working regular jobs while also working the equivalent of full-time for free for journalism outlets. And uh, yeah, I was working at, I worked at one of our alt weeklies, and then I wa- worked at uh, the NPR station in Philadelphia, WHYY, where you know Terry Gross is and all that. And started for free, and then a few months in, I got hired and was uh, pr- producer's assistant and a freelance, you know, reporter on air. Uh, so producer's assistant for the local morning edition. Um, So during that time, I did a story about librarians and the Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. And it was talking to librarians that I realized that, wow, you know, librarians just sound like my people. (laughs) And and I felt like the skill set was really similar. And so eventually I decided to make a career change um, and go to library school. So I got a job at a medical publishing company to to you know, because they helped with tuition and things like that. So so a lot of my decisions along the way were just kind of practical, what was available to me at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I didn't have a safety net or someone paying my rent or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, I was, so I got into medicine in this totally backwards way by just getting a job at a publishing company that happened to be medical, right? Mm-hmm. And I was trying to learn about, I, I was interested in rare books and and going to school and I went to the Mütter Museum one day, which I often did because I just thought it was so great in Philadelphia, it's this uh, medical oddities museum. And I saw, you know, you're in this beautiful 19th century building with, you know, brass and glass and plush carpets and this like gorgeous atrium and there are all these dead bodies all over the place and really unusual looking dead bodies. But then in one little case, there were these books, these plain looking brown old books with their covers closed. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Um, Why would you show these books with their covers closed? There's nothing interesting about them. And then I read the caption, and it said that they were books bound in human skin, and that they were done by doctors. And I was just so shocked. And then over Then I became a librarian, moved to Los Angeles, got interested in the history of medicine, and these books just kept coming up. And I realized that there were more than just what was at the Mütter Museum and that there were something that people didn't really know a lot about. And um, I I just got really interested. And then once I read about that there was now a scientific test that could be performed on these books to find out whether they were really human or not, that just really launched me in another direction so that's uh that was the whole my life story of how I got to human skin book lady I guess
0: (laughs) so that was your first sighting at the Mütter Museum um and then I guess there's sort of once you knew there was a test then you know that there could be this kind of hunt for the real ones and this sense of discovery along the way So is that when you knew there was a real story here, that they were not just some macabre footnote? So the idea that there were way more than than anyone knew about? Or perhaps a lot of people probably don't know these exist at all.
1: Right. I mean, I, you know I I am I would consider myself a literate, like bookish person, and I had no idea that they existed until I saw them at the motor in two thousand eight and then i thought they were just a mooter thing like so many other things that they only exist there and then you know fast forward a couple of years and i went to i had a a class a week long rare book cataloging class with the california rare book school and i brought them up in conversation and the professor was just like yeah i think we have one of those and i was like what and that, that was <laughs> and and then it was from this completely different Time period, you know, is a legend. It was a book from the French Revolution era, and then he brought it out for me, but I didn't know that he was going to. So I picked it up and was looking at it, and he's like, "Oh, hey, there's a human skin book that you asked for," and I was like, "Oh, oh, I'm <laughs> this book." Uh, but it turned out that later on, we tested that book, and it wasn't real. It was made of horse. It was horse leather, and so then, then that element of the testing plus this really interesting kind of hidden history really started to appeal to me because it made me think okay not only has has there not really been uh many people digging into the provenance stories of these books but now we actually know something about them or have the ability to know something about them that was never known before so what if you know if you can combine the backstories and the people involved in these stories and make it a more humanizing you know story than just oh these gross books books existed icky you know and that and that's the end of it um but then also okay so that french revolution that prayer book was not human. So how did it get the story attached to it? What does it mean? What does it mean to, what did it mean for these books to be created for real? And what did it mean for all the ones that we have legends about that aren't true? Or just preconceived notions about who would make a human skin book or how or why? And then how much can we actually learn about it? And so that was really, yeah, the hunt really began at that point when I met Daniel Kirby, the chemist, and we started comparing notes about the ones that he had tested so far and other ones he had heard of. And then, because right around that time, he also tested the books at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia at the Mooner Museum, and their curator, Anna Doty, also, you know, got interested in which other ones were were out there. So then we sort of joined forces together to create this interdisciplinary team called the Anthropodermic Book Project and we built a database full of human skin books about ones that we could actually find, okay, not just I heard there might be a the campus tour guide says there's a human skin book in this library but we know what the title is and we can find it and identify an individual book in a place that could be tested and then we started you know, compiling those and seeing what we could find seeing what we could test. And then in the meantime, I would travel around to see them and learn about them. And that's really that provenance dig plus when we could get them the scientific tests. That combination is, is, was the basis for this book.
0: So you mentioned doctors and you mentioned the French Revolution. So who did make these books?
1: For the most part, when I dig into the provenance of these stories, there's almost always a doctor involved somewhere. And they're generally made in the 19th century. So the books, the text blocks of the books themselves can go back really far in time. But it was pretty commonplace for book collectors to rebind books in the 19th century to according to their taste and this would have been Mm. an example of that so even if the book was from the 17th century or something like that it would the rebinding in human skin would have been in the 19th century and they were so whether the doctor was ultimately the owner of the book itself or whether a doctor facilitated the creation of the book um, often were able to find a doctor involved somehow. Because doctors had access to this binding material that no one else had because they would be dissecting people to learn. And there was this with the development of clinical medicine alongside it sort of a side effect of that development was the development of a certain way of looking. Of a certain way of doctors looking at patients and Michel foucault called it the clinical gaze and it's like when you see a whole lot of patients and you're dealing with a lot of dead bodies you know doing dissections Mm -hmm. that and you're able to know more about a patient for the first time than that than what they can report right because of all these new diagnostic tools and things that are happening you look Mm -hmm. at them in a more and more minute Level as organs get, and how and their organ function or diseases to be cured. And if you don't check back in with your humanity and your empathy, you can lose sight of the humanity of that patient and this depersonalized, sort of distanced way of looking uh, can happen. So, what happens when you've got this access? to these rare materials, like you got access to human dead bodies. There's no such thing as consent. There's, you know, this kind Mm -hmm. of no, usually all the parts after you did a dissection would just end up in a bucket, you know? Um, But if you are not really thinking of this person's body as a person, and then you're also part of this sort of climb, social climb, in class where you're doing gentlemanly things like collecting art and collecting books. And then you have access to this where uh, binding material, this is, all these things converge in this very strange practice, which is the book bound in human skin. And the shocking thing about it is that it wasn't done by, you know, serial killers or the worst monsters you can think of in history, but multiple well-respected doctors in the field across so far multiple countries in the west and it
0: feels shockingly recent too that a lot of this was in the 19th century Um, yeah
1: yeah for sure and i mean i think that that's part of as i started digging into the background some of the some of the things i learned about you know, when did we start, you know, when did people start donating their bodies to science? Um, mid-20th century, really, I mean, for the most part, you know, is that there's some of these things were so unbelievably recent, but they are things that we hold really dear and that we kind of default to believing. Oh, of course, you can do this, you can do that. And yeah, when even when people ask me questions about the legality of, oh, didn't, didn't anyone get caught doing this or something like that. It's really framed on, from our current mindset of the fact that, well, surely this must be illegal. It's kind of, that's not really a fully, the answer of, is it legal? Is that's complicated and we don't really know. (laughs) So even today, Uh, but, you know, surely people must have gotten caught. Surely this people would be very upset about it if they found out. But you know, this was a real in-group out-group kind of thing about who knew what people were doing, what was acceptable within certain circles and not within others, and then also who had access to doing things like reporting what they thought was something that was bad that was being done, if you even heard about it being done, or writing about something who has access to the press, like the means of the press to be able to Complain about such a thing, you know. So it was a, a lot different. So many of these things that we kind of take for granted uh, today were not really available to people.
0: And surely too, the the people whose bodies were being used in this way were also of the out group. Yeah, for sure. The same advantage class as the ones who were creating and otherwise enjoying these artifacts
1: yeah for sure so this story is definitely a a story about um social class and who was able yeah who who had power and give in different situations and there was definitely a power differential i i Although we can never know for sure, it is highly unlikely that the people who were made into these books were of a uh, upper class, uh, generally. That there mm-hmm. were people who ended up on the anatomist slab for various reasons. But it was a lot easier to end up on a slab. It doesn't mean that you were someone who had no loved ones at all or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more complicated. and than that and can be scary if you really think about it, uh, for that reason. So it's, it's surely a class there's class running all throughout it and any kind of marginalization that people can experience. It all sort of comes into play in ways throughout the story of anthropodermic bibliophagy, but maybe in ways that can be unexpected throughout the book
0: and how did the book surprise you as it came together um how did it change and what was maybe a favorite story that you came across in the process well the book
1: took a long time to come together and it it went through many many iterations as you know because it's so hard to tell a story that encompasses so many different fields and time periods and just there there are all these different books that tell stories and w- which stories were i was i able to really find enough background about to really say something important and which ones were representative of an important idea that i really wanted to say but the hard part i think writing this book was Okay, so I found these people who have these great stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the people that I could find behind the books, either the people who made them or, of course, my favorite or when I could find stories about the people they were made from, which is a lot harder.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but, you know, we've got these really interesting historical characters and I'm happy to let them, you know, speak for themselves, especially in the George Walton chapter. I mean, that was the first book chapter I wrote because he is the only one thus far that we've found who consented to this happening to his body and he it binds a narrative of his life in his own words so i was just really able to let him tell his story and it was not mm-hmm. that much intervention you know it was pretty easy to summarize some of the amazing stories he told and i feel like you can really get a feel about who he was based off of the way that he told his his own story so he he's definitely a standout favorite of mine in the book and you know I I feel like others will feel similarly about him I think he's kind of a beguiling figure um, but I think that you know some of the other challenges were okay yes we have all these great stories but it, is it a book if it's really just kind of a collection of stories strung together or Uh, how how do we find that narrative arc that makes you feel like you're taking the gist of okay there's this idea that human skin books exist and it has to do with clinical medicine it has to do with class and has a lot of ethical issues okay but how do we make that make an arc where it feels like we go on a journey together and then come out to a bit bigger understanding and that it, at the end, there are parts of it that relate to current issues, things that, you know, current situations that happen today, that the story is not just in the past, but it informs the present. And so I had all of these bits and pieces that needed to be put in the right order. And especially challenging was the beginning. The first mm-hmm. few chapters, trying to find out how can I get you into the action of the story quick enough so that you don't lose interest, but give you the background information that you need so that we can do the deeper dives later in the chapter. That was really, really mm-hmm. difficult, and I would say that was like the biggest editing lift. There was a million different <laughs> iterations and moving things, taking certain stories out, putting them in. Um, ultimately, I feel like we landed upon something that that works. Um I mean, we'll see what everyone else thinks, but <laughs> I feel like you get a feel for what you're in for at the beginning and whether the book's for you or not. But then, I would just caution, you know that if if you think that's all there is and that then, you really miss out if you don't keep going to get into the really meaty historical deep dive stuff that, that happens later. But the beginning, yeah. I think that you're ready. So that's good.
0: It's an extremely rich and engaging story. And you also um, are a character in it. I mean, you kind of lead us through this adventure. I wonder if you, there was ever a point when you considered not like narrating it yourself or if yes. you always thought. Yeah.
1: There were, there were times where, or iterations, where I wasn't in it at all, or I was only in small parts of it and would kind of disappear and come back. Um, and all of the things that happened, of course, in the book really happened. They're really me running around, you know, doing this research and everything. Um, but different readers who were commenting on it on different points would, you know, either you know some some people didn't like that element as much or (laughs) you know didn't think i was funny when i was trying to be funny or i mean not trying to be funny but some things although the subject matter is really serious there are things that happen in the research process to me that could be funny like when i ruined my shoes at a leather tannery and i think those moments kind of you know make people feel like they know me as a narrator and that they're able to come along on this very strange and somewhat disturbing journey with someone that they can kind of trust and know who they are. Um, Exactly. And And
0: someone who's acknowledging the very like kind of absurdity and freakiness and fascination of everything that's happening. I think that's why your narration works so well.
1: Yeah, and I'm just, a, you know, I'm a klutzy person, so I just like sometimes sometimes silly things happen. Um and and but I feel like I'm gratified that thus far the reader response people seem to get what I was going for and that anytime there's a funny bit that the joke is always on me, right? It's always on me being a bumbling idiot. I never make fun <laughs> of anyone who something horrible happened to, but I think that you sometimes need that little bit of release valve of pressure when you're dealing with a topic that is very dark. Um, And so, yeah, I think ultimately I'm glad that I'm in there because I feel like this book, to tie it together so it's not just a collection, like a march of stories, that to feel like you go on a journey, you need need a guide through this world because it's pretty... (laughs) Vast and deep and dark.
0: I wanted to ask if you've had any. I mean, the book is so we're recording this the day before pub day. The book is about to come out to the world. So some people have read it definitely, certainly friends and reviewers, a few early readers. I wonder what have been some of the best and most surprising reactions from readers so far. I'm <laughs> sure that when you talked about, when you were writing this book and telling people about it, I'm sure you got some raised eyebrows. And uh, as you said, some, some people will hear about the subject matter and have no interest in looking further, but there must be people who reacted the other way.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm really glad it seems like the book is finding its audience. Um, which is so, especially for a debut writer, like to, to know that there are people out there who are like, it's about what books bound in human skin, tell me more. Those (laughs) people are finding the book and that's really happy for me because yeah, I fully, I, this is not for everyone and that is okay. If you hear there's a book about books bound in human skin, they were real and you think nope, then I'm like on your way have a nice life is totally fine that you don't read this book. Please don't like force yourself through the story. You won't like it. But if you're like, I am, I want to know more. I'm intrigued. Well, you know, or some people are like, Oh, absolutely. Yes. Then, then I'm here for you. I'm here for your human skin book journey. Um, that I, some of the funny things I've heard so far, uh, yeah, some people are responding to some of the humor which is lovely again because it was kind of contentious about the you know there isn't a ton of humor in it but there's some and some people seem to be responding to it um a friend of mine uh you know like a, a acquaintance kind of online friend uh Sarah Elizabeth she just wrote a book about the art of the occult and she's been reading the book, and <laughs> she tagged me in a picture with with a you know piece highlighted, which was I was talking about some of the images in the Jan Ladmore, uh book, and I, I said you know the quote was the results are incomparably lush and vel- velvety images that may or may not have caused me to utter out allowed that flayed penis is just beautiful she tagged me and she's like megan rosenblum has set the standard dudes if you're going to be sending unsolicited pics of your ding dong (laughs) i was just like
0: that was just really funny to me Um, better solicit this reaction (laughs) yeah
1: it it better be lush and velvety images
0: wow (laughs) like
1: please come aesthetically correct with your with your um unsolicited pics because or just don't do unsolicited at all, you know, because consent is everything, as this book will, will tell you how important consent is. Um, but I, I think that that was, that was a funny reaction that I didn't expect necessarily, but <laughs> I'm glad that someone picked up on it. Um, another one was a writer for Ars Technica, who I'm familiar with. Um, she's reviewing the book, I believe. Um, she's a science writer, and, so is, and her husband is also a scientist and science communicator and she read my book on the beach <laughs> which <laughs> just like the idea of this being a beach read is hilarious to start with it's and incredible. then she incredible. she was reading it and she was like cracking up laughing and her husband was like what could you possibly be laughing at like about this book and he's like she's like it's funny there are funny parts actually you know so that's been fun to see that you know because because there were some questions about voice and you know how it go that there are some people who really are reacting are taking it in the in the good spirit that it is and that other readers and reviewers i have seen on like goodreads and stuff like that have have talked about how much heart the book has and how empathetic it is and ethical and that has also been really important to me you know it is a very controversial topic and I don't know that everybody would agree with what I think are, you know, should be done with these books. And so the, the fact that people are seeing the care that I, and, and the respect that I've taken, even if parts are, are there little funny bits, little funny asides that, um, yeah, the fact that it's going over tonally with most readers that I've, I've heard so far, then, then that's great. Um, that's, actually very heartening for me as a writer that i was able to get across what i was trying to get across
0: i think both reactions really well of you and um the balance that you struck in in writing this book because as you mentioned earlier you're not like punching down at people who suffered it's it's an act of compassion and advocacy i think to write for to speak for these people who probably had no say in what became of their bodies. I wonder if you might talk about the order of the good death. This is something that uh, appears in your, in your bio, any reader will see it in the flat copy. Um, And you work with the events arm of this organization. And there are some other writers that people might know who are also involved. So, what what is the order of the good death, and what do you do for them?
1: Sure. So, the order of the good death was is you know a collective and a social justice movement. Um, a collective of academics, artists, writers, death professionals like morticians, death doulas, you know, hospice workers, all people who are like actively engaging with our mortality instead of trying to ignore it. And (laughs) learning about death and different death practices over history and from different cultures and kind of having it expand our horizons about what and arming people with knowledge and choice around their end of life and death. Um, And also not allowing for people giving a space for people to be okay for being interested In things that other people think are morbid, you know Mm -hmm. that there's no there's nothing wrong with being curious about death. It's a huge, you know, it's like one of life's great mysteries, and yet it also happens to all of us. And how could you not possibly be interested in that? And also, it can be pretty psychologically damaging to pretend that that's not ever not ever going to come into your life or that it won't happen to you. Um, So I think that so it was started by Caitlin Dodie who is a mortician and she is now like a multi-best selling author. She's written three New York Times bestselling books about death. And I believe she has a fourth one on the way. And then um so what do I do for the order? Uh we were doing all of these, we we're doing these sort of conference in-person event like public event things called death salons mm-hmm. and we did them all over the u.s and one in london and they were really popular and you know multi-day all singing all dancing kind of you know having lectures but also performances you know trying to bring all of the different elements of those academics and writers and artists and and death professionals bring them all together for a public o- audience to be able to hear about people's work or experience it for themselves and to have a sort of, you know, interaction with your mortality and engage your own morbid curiosity in a place where that's encouraged. And it was just such an amazing community. Um, and the events were so great. And so I was the main director that was, you know, organizing all these events. But after the last one we did it in um, Boston at Mount Auburn Cemetery, it was such a great event, but we were just realizing like, okay, we can only accommodate a few hundred people. And Mm -hmm. every year we do a a whole year's worth of work to put this event on. And it sells out in a day, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) months in advance. And, we're seeing a lot of the same folks all the time and while we love them and that's our community, you know, it did feel a little bit more preaching to the choir and a little less maybe accessible to local people who were, who wanted to attend, you know, because people Mm -hmm. would be like, this is my vacation. I'm going to fly there and do the whole thing. And that's great. But it's just like, we couldn't, we wanted To reach more people and find different ways so there had to be a model we were starting to explore is there a new is there a better model where we can do more where we can get to more people where we can get to them on a more accessible level without it being um you know us having to run you know many many events so we were kind of thinking about doing maybe like a tedx style thing or something like that and so we pressed pause on the events just to try to retool and then you know, we're all very busy with other stuff, too. And so we're just letting it simmer. And then the pandemic happened. And then it was kind of like, wow, I'm so glad that we didn't have a plan. That would have been an absolute nightmare to try to deal with that. So who knows what'll what'll happen? You know, it's not done. But it's definitely on pause for quite a while until we figure out what, you know, what is the best way? Once we can actually all get together safely, what is the best way to do that? And what's the best way to to make sure as many people who want to interact with this like can do that, but in the meantime, you know we're all involved in lots of different you know ventures. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of writers among us. Um, you know, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris is another FSG author. Um, she wrote *The Butchering Art*. She's a, a medical historian, and uh, yeah, she she was involved in the decolons and stuff and in the order um there is uh colin dickey is writes a lot i i just love all of colin's books and um his latest one is called the unidentified and it's about uh sort of you know ufo sightings and cryptozoology and things like that and um there are some new books coming out too. Like Dr. Paul Cunares, who's the most entertaining person you'll ever meet, has a book coming out about um his his cat is like the best model I've ever seen. Like, have you ever seen a cat smise? It's it's really pretty incredible. <laughs> I don't know that I have. Uh but he has a book out uh that is written by the cat as translated by him. And she dresses up in really amazing outfits and tells the history of cat like life over time <laughs> so it's just pretty amazing and i know a lot of those things i mentioned don't necessarily sound death positive but all of these writers have had other you know deathy stuff for and, and since and uh oh another writer that if there's someone that i could just make her book a national like pandemic read that everyone had to read. It it's uh, Megan Devine. Yeah, Megan Devine wrote this book called "It's Okay That You're Not Okay," and it's all about grief and kind of disabusing people of the cliches and and things that you think about how grief is supposed to go, how long it's supposed to last, and and you know actually arming you not just telling you okay you've been doing this wrong but actually arming you with with useful information to how to show up for people in grief and there are all different kinds of grief too i mean we are in a collective grief right now and it comes out in all sorts of weird ways and then if you actually if you have someone in your life who dies during this time either of covid or also of completely non-related COVID reasons, but your grief is also being twisted and contorted because you can't do the kind of rituals that you would normally do to to try to process the loss of someone. Um, so I just think that her work, right from the beginning when it came out, I was like, wow, this book is so great. I have b- bought it for so many people <laughs> over the past few years since it's been out. But now I'm just like, we actually, all of us need this right away.
0: <laughs> so I, I'm um, a big like It could have been written like two weeks ago.
1: Yeah. None of, yeah. Them, we, none of
0: us are okay.
1: We are not okay, not okay. And it has to be okay. Uh, we can't trudge through and b- pretend that, you know, this isn't all happening around us, that we're not in this, you know, existential kind of like terror all the time um i feel like the death positive work i've done is like you know the work i've been involved in but also the personal kind of constant exposure to death in these safe ways through things like reading about stuff engaging in in these ideas and discussions it has it has helped me a lot to deal with the pandemic so far. Uh, Because I will recognize sometimes, okay, um, well, maybe I feel like I can't be productive right now because everything's on almost literal fire. (laughs) You know, I was, you know, I live in LA, so things have been literally on fire. Um, And Hey, maybe that's what. Maybe I should be a little more understanding with myself if certain things aren't going the way I want, or I don't know why I can't seem to get out of a funk, or something like that. Um, But also, yeah, things just like offering practical advice to people. I not advice. um, Offering practical help instead of saying if there's anything I can do, kind of like I will walk your dog every day. (laughs) You know that, like just little ways to try to be better and show up for people you know i had a friend who got divorced and i was able to just be like hey this sucks you know i i i want to acknowledge that what you're going through sucks and i wish this wasn't happening to you because it sucks instead of trying to fix it you know mm. because you can't fix it it just sucks and right now i'm glad there are people out there trying to fix elements of it but we also just have to recognize that it sucks and just allowing that kind of space for yourself and an acknowledgement to not try to gaslight yourself into believing that you should be different or especially with, you know, I'm a working parent, you know, just like, why didn't I, why, why wasn't I able to submit that paper in time for that, (laughs) for that, um, you know, journal call or whatever. It's like, um, I can think of some reasons why. <laughs> it's it's okay maybe next time you know i'm trying to find that grace for myself um while i also tell everyone else to do it too.
0: a final question you mentioned george walton he's a erstwhile highway robber it will be meet him in your book he writes his memoirs in prison and then he has them bound in his skin once he's passed i'm sure you get this all the time but if you were going to have a book bound in your skin which book would it be oh
1: good question. you are actually the first person to ask me that <laughs> i don't know maybe i would have to go the joseph Lydie route and have my own book bound in my skin <laughs> i was
0: gonna suggest it
1: i mean this has been such a journey this whole book writing process I think I went in pretty naive about <laughs> you know <laughs> about how much it would take and all all the parts of it um so I feel like that that would make the most sense to me would be You're to saying have, it's an
0: actual, it's an actual chunk of your flesh <laughs> yeah I mean it quite it definitely feels that
1: way but if I did that I would have to take the part of my skin that has my book finishing tattoo on it um yes. that that would be so that you would my book would not be like some of the other human skin books where you would be able to not, where you wouldn't know that it was bound in human skin unless someone wrote inside. Like you would know if you if I had my tattoo on a on a skin book, but but I am not uh this is not any sort of advanced directive. I am not uh consenting to binding a book in my skin, so please don't do that. Uh, I'm not on on that team. Although, Anna Doty at the Mooder did mention, because my book finishing tattoo is more or less the logo for the College of Physicians Historical Medical Library, that she did proclaim it jar-worthy. And (laughs) and she said that she would be happy to take it off my... She would be happy to accept it as a specimen uh, in the event of my eventual end and um, so
0: that seems like a compliment
1: yeah I mean I think you know she's got she's trying to get dibs I have not yet consented <laughs> but I but I also think it's kind of goes to show you know the idea is not completely repugnant to me because the idea of being in that museum that I love with all of these people and the remains, where they didn't really get a choice in the matter, but then I did. The way that Walton had his own, was able to assert some semblance of control over the fact that he died in prison, you know, uh, of an illness. That it's sort of that control and consent and how different things would be for me than it would have been for people in the past or myself 200 years ago. I think that's kind of meaningful you know, I think it's, I could see how it would be an interesting story for a future person to interact with when I'm not around.
0: Well said. So on that note, um, thank you for talking with me, Megan, and thank you all for tuning in. I'm Julia Ringo. And I'm Megan Rosenblum. And this is Well Versed.